Well, again, thanks for joining us. Uh, I think we're in between snowstorms, but glad we could squeeze a Sunday in here together to celebrate, to, to worship, uh, to gather together in this place. Well, I recently caught uh, an episode of a, a sitcom uh, about a couple of guys, friends, who own a bar. And the show began with them sort of venting about all of the, the expanding sort of no smoking laws in our country. It's kind of had the attitude of, you know, why is everything illegal really? Uh, and then from that point, they decide that theirs is going to be an establishment in which everything goes. No laws, no rules, no standard, nothing, nothing, anything anybody wants to do, it's okay there. And at first, I mean, I can kind of appreciate that a little bit. I mean, I, I have a, at least a few libertarian sympathies. I mean, why are there so many rules about everything anyway? Besides, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that if somebody gives me a rule, tells me I can't do something, I mean, all of a sudden, right, many of us are like, I want to do it even more. What do you mean I can't? do a U-turn in this intersection. Like, I don't even want to go that direction, but now all of a sudden I'm thinking of all the reasons why I need to go back there. Or a dessert fork? Like, I mean, who makes up these rules? Like, if there's a fork, I want to use it however I want to use it. Why do we have? So, I mean, anybody else, right? We struggle with rules. Kids, kids in particular, raise your hand if you like rules. Any, anybody? Any kids here? Yeah, yeah, right? Okay, yeah, maybe that big kid over there. Yeah, we struggle against rules. We, they're, they're hard. So, so back to this, this TV show, okay? A bar in which anything goes. And, it, and at first, it's all harmless enough. You know, maybe a little bit of edgy, but, but not that big of a deal. But by the end of the episode, the place has become an absolute sort of epitome of degradation. I mean, it's like Lord of the Flies on steroids. And it it actually ends with the owners finally throwing in the towel to their great experiment, and things get so bad that they end up actually having to call the cops. I mean, it's just, it it can't be done, right? No, No matter how good an idea, no rules may sound to any of us, good luck. Because it doesn't take long for things to begin to just sort of fall apart. Life is complicated. People are selfish. And it doesn't take long at all for us to begin to self-destruct or to take advantage of the people around us or completely abuse the freedom in which we are given. Kids, that's why your parents make rules. Grown-ups, that's why our nation makes laws. And Christians, that's why this book contains commandments. We might fight against them. We might accuse them of trying to stifle our freedom and individual expression. We may even try to pick and choose the ones that we like or don't like or whatever. But listen, thank God for his rules. They're there for our life. They're there for, for our protection, for our joy. His law is good. And all of us live by rules. I mean, every one of us, it doesn't matter your background, situation. We all live by rules. Some of them good, some of them bad. Only his rules are absolutely trustworthy. Only his commands ensure our 
flourishing. Thank God for his rules. If you have a Bible with you, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. If you've been with us over these past couple of months here, you know that we are kind of on this, this project, this, this attempt to go through the entire Bible together. We're reading together. Uh, we're talking about it every Sunday together. And so we've been moving pretty quickly through the story. Uh, but we're going to slow down for a couple of weeks. We're actually going to spend this Sunday and the next two Sundays, so three all together, here in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy simply means second law. God had already given his people the rules, his commandments, when they left Egypt. But here he gives them to them once more. Just sort of to remind them before they enter the promised land. And last week, if you recall, that we left the people of Israel right on the edge of the promised land. But they refused to go in. They, they disbelieved that, that God could accomplish what he had promised to them, and so they refused, and God said, fine, I'll wait. And he says, I'm going to wait for this entire generation of grumblers to die off, and you're all going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Well, all that has happened now. Those 40 years are past. It's pretty fast within just a week for us. But 40 years, and so now we have an entirely new generation of God's people about to enter the promised land. There they are on the edge, the east side of the Jordan River, right on the cusp of God's promises, just like last week. And aside from three people, Moses, Joshua, and Caleb, every one of this massive group of people, these Israelites, They were either children or teenagers or not born yet when all of the stuff that we have experienced together in this story actually happened. You know, the crossing of the Red Sea, the Passover, the the giving of the Ten Commandments, the law. This is all sort of new and fresh for them. These are second generation people of the redeemed coming out of the land of Egypt. And Moses, he knows that he's about to die. And so he wants to set up this next generation for success. And so he gathers them all together and he preaches a sermon. A really, really, really long sermon, or maybe a series of sermons, but it's his his last words the book of Deuteronomy. It is his sermon before the people. So you kind of picture him, right? Gathering all the people together. This second generation group of people who are God's covenant chosen people about to enter the land. He preaches his heart out. And then at the end of Deuteronomy, he gets out from behind his pulpit. He climbs up to the top of a mountain alone and he dies. These are the words he wanted to leave with God's people. And so in Deuteronomy Five, today, we look at just one part of his sermon, the Ten Commandments, a section probably familiar to many of us. They first appeared back in Exodus chapter 20 when they had left Egypt at Mount Sinai, and now Moses reminds them. They were just kids that first time around. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to ask three questions. Why does God give us rules? 
What are those rules? And how should we respond? Three questions. Why does God give us rules? Now, there's a lot that we could say, okay, about why. But simply put, he gives us rules to teach us who he is and to teach us how we flourish. Two really big, important reasons. God's rules teach us who he is. Even even the Ten Commandments here uh, in Deuteronomy 5, they begin by God telling us, telling his people who he is. In fact, really, that's the first six verses there of God just sort of explaining, this is who I am. His rules are not about us. They're about him. Verse 6. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Sort of the preamble to the Ten Commandments. We've got to remember as we go through this story that every part of it, every section, God is always the main character. Not us. Not our situations. Not even the Israelites. God is the main character of his story. And even his rules are designed to reveal himself to us. They are rooted in his character. They're not not arbitrary. God is holy and righteous and just. And we as his creatures, made in his image, he expects us to. To live accordingly. And really, even the fact that God gives us rules shows us a lot about who this God is. And even even the pattern in which he does so. I mean, just even think about that. First, he rescues. And then he tells us how to live. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, that's what happens with the Israelites. First, he rescues them from the slavery in which they were found in Egypt. And then he reveals the law. He does the same thing with us. As we come to faith in Christ, we don't obey his rules in order that he might rescue us. But once we've been rescued by him, how can we not obey? I mean, we used to be slaves back in Egypt. And now we've been set free. Of course, we're going to want to obey his commands. Right? Thank God for his rules. So they they teach us about God, and, and we'll see that as we walk through the Ten Commandments, that each one of these reveals something about who God is. But they also, his rules, they also teach us what it means to flourish, really what it means to be human. He is our creator, and so he can command anything that he wants. But his rules are not arbitrary. They are designed for our flourishing, for our good I mean, back in the Garden of Eden, if you remember, you know, back there with Adam and Eve, it was a place of perfect flourishing, right? Absolute harmony and delight among God and, and between people. It's perfect. We rebelled. We broke our world and ourselves. And yet now God graciously gives us commands in order to bring us back into as much flourishing as is humanly possible in a broken world. That's what his commands are designed to do in us and for us. To restore so much of what we lost. In Deuteronomy 8.3, for example, God says, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And Jesus, he'd repeat this in the New Testament later on. But God's words, essentially, in this context, his rules are life to us. They're like the bread that sustains a starving person. That's that's the idea of of what's being said here. We need his rules to teach us how to live. And they're not just 
for my flourishing. They're not just good for me. They are good for us. They show us what life together ought to look like. Life as as a community of people seeking God together. Thank God for his rules. They are for our joy. maybe, Maybe think of it this way. A few months ago, we took the kids to the top of um, City Hall, downtown Kansas City. Uh, They have an observation deck up there. It's free, and uh, you can just kind of go and wander around and, and see this great view of our, of our entire city. It was, it was just a really, really fun, beautiful time, good family moment together. Uh, and up there, way up high, there are walls. You can, you can see the wall around, um, you know, to protect us from falling to our death, right? Walls? <sighs> How dare they? I mean, what gives them the right to say that if I don't, if I want to, why, why can't I just, you know, want, well, just kidding, wander along? I mean, why can't I just allow my kids to sort of dangle their feet off the edge? How dare they inhibit my freedom? Really? I mean, nobody in their right mind would think that. In fact, imagine being up there without any walls, Right? I mean, it'd be terrifying, especially if you have little kids. I mean, we, we would have been, we would have held on to them the entire time. We would have been back as far from the edge as humanly possible. We wouldn't have stayed nearly as long. It would have been nearly as enjoyable. I mean, it just, it would have changed the entire experience. But with the walls, we were safe. We were protect- we could, the kids could, could play and we could wander around up there and talk and laugh and take pictures and, and enjoy just being in that environment together. We didn't resent the walls. We were thankful for them. They provided the boundaries in which we could experience great freedom and joy up in that, up in that place, up in that moment. And the same is true with God's laws. Once we understand that they actually exist for our good, they don't They don't inhibit our joy. They enhance it. They don't reduce our freedom. They give us the the place where freedom can can run and and enjoy the the greatest potential possible. I mean, without boundaries, there's fear, desperation. But with God's boundaries, there's freedom and joy. That's why the Apostle Paul In the New Testament, he says, Now we know that the law is good. Some Christians will maybe say something like that the God of the Old Testament is a God of law, but the God of the New Testament is a God of grace. Have you heard this before? Maybe some of you? Some of you maybe said it. Um, Yeah. Let Let me just say, so help me. If I catch any one of you saying that, I'm just going to smack you, okay? It, it will happen. It's ridiculous. We serve one God, a God who never changes, never changes. And don't you see? God's laws are grace. I mean, they're an expression of his incredible grace to us. I mean, just think about it. There are few things more gracious than a God who made us, who designed us, who designed our world, who actually takes the time to tell us how we ought to live. 
But do you see how gracious that is? How kind, how loving that God would mercifully tell us the way that life ought to work best. Thank God for his rules. But what are those rules? Now you're getting maybe a little bit worried that this sermon's going to be as long as Moses's. We all know there's Ten Commandments, right? We haven't even started in on the first one. Um, sorry about that. Uh, and actually, you know, if you, if you do the math, scholars will tell you that there's really more like 613 commands in the Old Testament law. So it could be worse, you know. <laughs> by, the end, by the end of the sermon, you might actually wish that I'd just climb up to the mountain and die, right? But don't worry, don't worry, we're going we're gonna to try to simplify things a little bit because those 613 specific laws really all fit neatly under the Ten Commandments. They're sort of more like subcategories. And really, we could take it even a step further because Jesus in the New Testament summarizes the law with only two commands. I mean, he makes it about as easy as possible. Not easy to obey, but easy to understand. His two commands, love God and love others, they all fit under there. And the specific commands, both the 10 and the 613, show us best how we can love God and love others. But I do want to spend a little bit of time walking through these 10. I mean, you know, they're such a famous thing, right? Everybody, everybody's heard of the Ten Commandments. I would guarantee there's a good majority of us who probably wouldn't be able to name off like more than six or seven. In fact, probably you know, you quiz me later, right? It's, I did just write a sermon. I might be able to name all 10 of them. But we, we quickly forget. So I want to spend a couple minutes just going over them. But the first four essentially are about loving God. We can kind of break them down. They're about our relationship with God, what it looks like to be in relationship with him. So commandment number one, verse seven, you shall have no other gods before me. Remember, we said that with every rule, we learn something about God. And we learn something about what it means to flourish. So what do, we, what do we learn from that command? I mean, simply put, we learn that, that with God, there, there is no other. And he will not share his glory or our allegiance with anything else, with anyone else. He wants us to serve and worship only him. Now, back then, right, they, they may have been, you know, tempted to actually run after other deities. We, we don't tend to, to go in that direction, but we all, we all know this one, right, deep down. We know how quickly we turn all the things in, that we love in our lives into gods, into these sort of idols that money, sex, leisure, family, work, school. I mean, we can turn anything we want into a god. But essentially, command number one is... Put God first in your life. Pretty simple, right? Theoretically. Because that will be the only thing that will satisfy you. Because God knows that we are only satisfied in him. And so put nothing ahead of God in your life. That's commandment number one. Got it? Okay. Commandment number two, verse eight. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. Now, that's kind of a strange one for us, right? Culturally, you know, what, what's going on in that context? Well, back in that, in that culture, in the ancient Near East, one of the most common ways that people would approach God, any God, any deity, would be to sort of take this, this spiritual being that they would believe in and make a physical representation of that God. So they could, you know, take it, take it around with them. 
I mean, think about it. If you're going into war, you want to take your God with you. You want to know, you want your soldiers to know that your God is there. And so you'd bring this statue, right? A calf or, a, a, you know, a, a person or a lion or all kinds of different images. You would take that God with you. And frankly, you could put that God in your house too. And you could feel safe about it. And you could, you could know because he's always there. And you could hide things from him, right? You just turn, turn him around, right? You don't, you don't want him to see it. And ultimately, what, what is happening when we make graven images of God, why God is against that is because it's an attempt to make God manageable. It's, it's our efforts to make him a little bit more containable, a little bit more manipulative or manipulative, able to manipulate him or whatever. You know, you, yeah. Um, and so really command number two is, is just don't make God less. Don't try to carve God into your own image. Believe that God is as he reveals himself to be and think right thoughts about him because really anything less is not going to satisfy us anyway. So that's command number two. Command number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And traditionally, we, we've made this one kind of about, you know, no, no swearing, no profanity, right? You shouldn't say, uh, oh my God, or Jesus Christ in ways that are, uh, you know, disrespectful, or in ways in which you're not actually talking to, to God. Uh, and that's true. That would certainly be included in this command, but I think it's so much more than that. I think ultimately it's about giving God lip service. It's about pretending to honor him, pretending to worship him, invoking his name or his presence when our hearts are far from him. The worst blasphemy is not profanity. I'm not encouraging profanity, but I don't think that's the worst blasphemy. The worst blasphemy is lip service. It's not taking God seriously. And so command number three, essentially, take God serious all the time. Always take him seriously. Command number four, observe the Sabbath day. We talked about this one a couple weeks ago, right? With the the grumblers in the wilderness. But why? Well, God tells us here in verse 15. He says, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. God commands us, God commands his people to take a day off every week to remember that he is God and we are not. That he is the one who rescues, that he is the one who keeps the world spinning, not us. And because we are no longer slaves, we can rest. Now, in in the Old Testament here, the the Sabbath was Saturday. That's how that customarily was, was practiced. However, when Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday, early Christians began taking that day instead. Because Sabbath is about this celebration. We're no longer slaves, and there is a rescue even greater than the one from Egypt that came with Jesus, his death and his resurrection. So Christians have taken Sunday as that day instead. But essentially, command number four, Command number four, this this Sabbath command, it simply means just don't try to be God like at least one day a week. I mean, that's, I think that's really what's just, just at least, at the very least, stop trying to be God at least one day a week. Besides, we need the rest, don't we? We do. 
Okay, so those are, that's the first four. Those have to do with loving God, the sort of our vertical relationship. Uh, now, the rest of them have to do with our horizontal relationship, how we, how we best love others, how we develop into community, into people who know and love one another. So command number five. Kids, still listening? Your parents really want you to listen to this one. Parents, this command is just as much about you as it is them. Right? We all have parents. In fact, in many ways, it's more likely that this command was written for older children caring for their parents. Verse 16. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land. God has established structures of authority in our world designed for our flourishing. They don't always end up in our flourishing, right? Families are broken and we know it. We struggle in it. And yet there is something about the very design of the family that is meant to be a place of flourishing. And God says, command number five, respect your parents. You may not always agree with them. You may have had lousy parents growing up. But God says respect them. Like God, they gave you life. Number six, you shall not murder that God is the respecter of all life. We are made in his image, and as a result, we have intrinsic value as humans. Life is beautiful. Every human life. Friends and enemies, foreigners and neighbors, people that we like, people we don't like, people who disagree with people with different backgrounds, different religions, different lifestyles, that life in itself is a beautiful thing. It is to be rejoiced in. We are not to murder. Which, again, makes sense, right? If, if you're in a community, can you imagine if murder was an acceptable practice? It just wouldn't work. Command number eight Oh, wait. Wait, 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 wait. Lost my place here. Nah, okay. Oh, you thought you got off the hook, didn't you? Command number seven. Can't forget about that guy. Oh, oh maybe we should skip it. Okay. You shall not commit adultery. Now, there, there are lots of laws about sexuality in this book, right? But most of them can easily be summarized with that one command. Don't commit adultery. Only have sex with the person you're married to. It's a, it's a pretty simple, straightforward command, isn't it? That sexuality is designed to be held in honor in that one place. And that would include, I mean, again, if we look into the New Testament, it includes lust, no lust, no pornography, um, no divorce. Absolute faithfulness. But Why? I mean, if all the commands are, are designed to teach us about God, why does God really care about that, right? It's my body. Who really cares? Because marriage and sexuality are designed, are invented by him to reveal a little bit of who he is. That's why they exist. They don't exist for us, ultimately. They don't exist for, for procreation or, uh, you know, family or any of that. As important as those things are, they exist to reveal just a tiny bit of who God is to us. Because God is absolutely faithful. And he, he will never betray us. And he, he allows himself to enter into a covenant with people, just like marriage. 
covenant of incredible intimacy, and he refers to his people as his wife, and that God is our husband. He'll never betray us. He'll never leave us. He'll never exploit us. He'll never abuse us. He'll never use us simply to to his own selfish ends. And yet he is always faithful. So it makes sense that marriage, sexuality, is meant to, to reveal that very same thing, that same relationship, that same level of faithfulness and trust. That's, that's why it's in here. And besides, we, we know, right? We, we know the lack of flourish. We know the destruction that comes, the lack of intimacy, the way it destroys families and lives. I'm guessing most of us could tell stories of people close to our lives that have completely destroyed their families, their situations, their work as a result of these things. No adultery. Number eight, you shall not steal. Because God is a God of abundance. He is defined in so many ways by generosity. We are created in his image. I mean, he's so generous. He gave his own life in order to rescue us. We're made in his image. And I mean, there is, you can't find a, a starker opposite to generosity than theft. And there's no flourishing living in a community of thieves. This is who God has created. When we steal, we betray our creator. We betray how we were made to live. So don't steal stuff from anyone. Don't steal time from your employer. Don't steal test answers from your classmate. Don't steal content from the copyright holders. Don't steal stuff from anyone. There's no flourishing in a community of thieves. It's just not worth it. Number nine, we're almost there, okay? Almost there. Number nine, you shall not bear fault with. Don't lie, basically. Again, God never lies. It's not within his character to lies. And besides, when we lie, we betray who we trust. Don't we? I mean, lying is, is fundamentally about self-preservation. Lying says, I've got to protect myself. I've got to maintain my image. I've got to make sure that people like me. When ultimately God's opinion is the one that matters. And he's the one who sees everything anyway. And so if we trust him, if we trust him to say that we're loved, that we're accepted, that we're approved, that we're safe, that we're significant, if we trust him, we don't have to lie. And again, there's no flourishing in a community of liars. It just wouldn't work. Finally, do not covet. This is kind of the, the oddball of the ten, or at least of these last six, because the other ones, the other vertical ones, they're stuff that you do to or with someone else. But this one you can do completely by yourself. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to, I mean, people don't even have to know that you're doing it, this idea of coveting. Um, but coveting says to God, you know, you've not been very good to me lately. In fact, you've been so much better to my neighbor than you have to me. And God, I kind of resent you for it. Deep down, maybe I even hate you a little bit for it. Why don't you treat me like you treat them? And we know. Because we, I mean, right? Any coveters here? Yeah, we, yeah all of us, right? We, 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 we all struggle. With, we all know what it's like. And we all know the lack of contentment that follows when all we do is focus on what we wish we had. And all we look at are, if only I could have that. If only could, my situation could be like this. There's no joy in that. There's no flourishing when we covet. Thank God 
for his rules. There's no better way to live. Love God, love others, and flourish. And all the commands in the Bible fit into these categories. But, but Nathan, what about, the, what about the rules we don't obey? I mean, what about the commands that we kind of, at this, we kind of ignore? What, what, about, what about them? That's a good question, isn't it? I mean, we don't have cities of refuge. Uh, we eat pork, at least some of us, as often as possible. Um, we wear poly blend fibers, all these, what, what about them? I mean, don't we as Christians, don't we just pick and choose anyway? We, we like these rules, so we'll take them. We don't like these, so we skip. Don't we just do that? I hope not. We shouldn't. Really, we can't. These rules are our life. So any law in the Bible that no longer, that we no longer follow must fit into a handful of categories. Because we're, we're about to read this section of Deuteronomy, all of these laws, I want us to have a little bit of a rubric to think, through why, do we, why do we obey some and why not others? This isn't exhaustive by any means, but just a, a couple of things, first of all. I mean, some laws, uh, laws like eating pork or circumcision, are explicitly explained in the New Testament. They're clearly outlined as being fulfilled in Christ. Okay? That's, that's why we don't practice them. Uh, others are ones that specifically had to do with Israel as a nation. Okay, they weren't just sort of a, a people of God sort of randomly dispersed like, like Christians are. Like we're spread out throughout, throughout the globe. Christians are not a nation. Israel was a nation. And so a lot of their laws have to do with what, it's, what does it mean to be a nation of people? That's why they have cities of refuge. That's why there are, are laws governing their, their judicial system and their building codes and, and all of these kinds of things. They fit into that. We're not a nation. We're not trying to be a nation. And so those laws don't apply in the same way because that's not who we are. We're not a nation. Some of the Old Testament laws fit in that category. We also, thankfully, we don't worry about all the ceremonial laws, uh, particularly laws about sacrifice or about cleanliness. But again, that's because those laws have been explicitly fulfilled in Christ. That he is the ultimate sacrifice. He's the one, that the final sacrifice that, that said, we don't need to do this anymore. And he is the ultimate path to cleanliness, to, to purity, uh, of being accepted with God. We don't have to do all, they're all, it's not that those rules are unimportant. They reveal a lot about God. But they've been accomplished for us in Christ. We've been fulfilled in, in Christ for us. And so they apply very differently in our circumstances today. This isn't pick and choosing. It's a really important distinction. This isn't pick and choosing, going through the ones we like or don't like, that fit our culture or don't. This is, this is understanding the Bible, understanding the times in which we live, the place in redemptive history in which we are found. And with all other commands in Scripture, whether we like them or not, whether they fit our cultural expectations or norms or not, we must take them seriously. I mean, the reality is, for many of us, we ignore certain of his laws just because we don't like them. Right? They just don't fit us. They're too hard. They don't fit our culture or our situation. And we say, nah, we find a way to ex- explain them away or sweep them under the rug. But ask yourself this question. Can your God disagree with you? Think about that. Or does your God just so happen to always like the same things you like and dislike the same, all the commands he gives you, frankly, the stuff that you just kind of keep anyway, 
right? Or in the ones that, that other people don't, they help you look down on them, you know? God just, if your God is always agreeing with you, if he never confronts you, a little fishy maybe, right? If your God can't contradict you, there's a good chance that you've created your own God. A God in your own image, one who will always agree with you, who will always pat you on the back, who will always make you feel good about yourself. It's a little too convenient, isn't it? We do this in all kinds of areas in our life. I mean, we could, we could pick any. I think one that we do it very frequently, particularly in our culture in this, this day together, is in the area of sexuality. We don't, we don't like what God has to say. They don't fit our culture. We don't, we don't like the way that he imposes these rules on our life and our lifestyles and the people around us. But does your God have permission to contradict you? Does God have permission to contradict our culture? The things that we don't care for? If he doesn't, then the God you worship is a God of your own making. And you will never, if, if that continues in your life, that will, you'll never have a relationship with the real God because you don't even want to. The real God will, will confront you. The real God will tell you what to do. He'll, he'll, he'll your will will, will smash up against him from time to time. His laws are for our good. And even when we don't understand them, even when we don't particularly like some of them, perhaps at the very least, they're an opportunity for us to continue to learn to trust him. Do you believe that God is good? Then trust that he's going to make good laws for us. And instead of kicking against God's rules, what's a better way to respond? I mean, if we, if we actually believe that his commands are for our good, what, what next? Well, three things. First, love his rules. Love them. Not in a legalistic way. Okay, legalism says that rules can save you. If you have enough rules, you can make yourself good enough before God. That, that, that's not what we're saying, okay? You, you can never obey enough rules or create enough rules to become a good enough person that God will accept you. That's what Jesus does for us. It's only possible in him. You cannot be saved by keeping rules. But love them. Rejoice in a God who so graciously shows us how to live. He loves us enough that he takes the time to explain how life works best for us. And so when you, when you read his rules, or worse and more frequently for all of us, when, when you start to sort of headbutt his rules a little bit, um, before you start trying to argue with him, it's a quick way to go, right? Come on, God, really? Before you do that, and even before you just simply try to muster up enough strength to, to obey them, before you do just stop for a moment. And thank God for his rules. Especially the ones you don't like. God, thank you that you tell me that I am to give myself sacrificially for the sake of my wife. God, thank you that you command me to be generous. I don't want to be generous. I'm not, I am not a generous, but thank you for giving me that command. God, thank you that, for telling me that my rights are secondary to everyone else's on the entire planet. That that's, that's how I'm supposed to approach it. That everyone else, put everyone else's needs ahead of mine. God, thanks for that. Love his rules. Any, any of you kids like Legos? Anybody? Anybody? 
few, yeah. Any grown-ups like Legos? Yeah, yeah. <sighs> I got to be honest. I, I love Legos so much. Um, it's embarrassing. Um, it, it, I'm a grown man for crying out loud. Thankfully, I have David, my, my little boy, um, so I can sort of, you know, blame my Lego habit um, on just being a good dad, you know, it's just being a good dad. But we'll sit and play for hours and just randomly we'll build all kinds of things together. But one of his absolute favorite things to do is to sit down with some elaborate set and he will follow those instructions piece by piece by piece. I mean, to a tease, sometimes five, six hundred pieces. He'll sit there for hours. He did it on Friday, he sat for like two hours, right? Over and over and over. He, he's five years old. He doesn't understand all the instructions. In fact, if you've ever built Legos before, sometimes you're putting pieces and you're like, I don't even know why that goes there. But you just, it says to, so you keep, keep doing it. You keep following it. He doesn't understand where it's all headed necessarily. And yet he delights in following that little instruction book. And, and by the end, he's taken a small mountain of cheap plastic pieces and made them into this, you know, tiny little masterpiece. It's, it's amazing just by following these instructions. And I think to myself, if only I loved God's law like my boy loves Legos. If only we paid this kind of, of attention to his instructions in our own life. God is just waiting to build a masterpiece out of our lives when we respond to him in faith-filled obedience, carefully following out his instructions. He's given them to us. Thank God for his rules. So that's the first one. The second, or love his rules. Second, this one's obvious. I gotta say it anyway, right? Obey them, right? I gotta tell myself that. It's not, we don't just love them. We don't just think, we, we obey them. And that's easier said than done, I know. It's hard, but they're worth it. It takes practice. It takes discipline. Uh, it takes a lifetime of simply learning what it means to follow Jesus slowly, piece by piece, over time. It takes a community learning how to do these things together. Just as a parent trains a child, God is always training us to obey him. And yes, we'll fail. I mean, the Israelites failed. Didn't take them along at all. God knew they would. So did Moses. And even if you think that you obey these 10 laws perfectly, you think you can just sort of check them off the list. I mean, how hard can they be, right? It's only 10. And first of all, if you feel that way, you don't understand the first four at all, okay? And just not even a little bit. Because all of us are, are completely far from the mark of actually loving God as we ought. But even the rest of them, and our relationship with one another, because yeah, okay, maybe at face value, I've never killed anyone, but Jesus doesn't get us off the hook. He reveals the heart behind the laws. He says, if you're an angry person, you're a murderer. Dang it. Rats. And he says, if, if, you, if you, maybe you haven't committed adultery, that's okay, that's, that's fine. But if you want to, you're guilty. Lust. He doesn't let any of us off the hook. Because every one of God's rules exposes our heart. And do you know what it exposes in here? Guilt. Darkness. It, it exposes someone who frankly likes disobeying. Who likes going my own way, even though I know it's going to destroy me. 
You read God's rules and you can't help but long for a savior. And that's the third response. And really, this is the most important thing. It's taken me a while to get there, but this is, this is really what you got to remember. We, together, we cling to the one who obeys them for us. You cannot look at God's laws without feeling inadequate. And if you're honest, without feeling terribly guilty, we don't measure up. We rebel against our creator, against the God who made us. We shipwreck our own flourishing, and we deserve death for our sins. But there is one who obeyed these laws perfectly. And he obeyed them perfectly for us. There is one who takes our guilt for all of our disobedience. He takes it upon himself on his cross, and he gives us his obedience. He gives us his righteousness and goodness so that when God looks at us, if we come to him in faith, he looks at us and sees us as pure and holy and beautiful as Jesus. If there's anything that we need to remember from this text, from this sermon this morning, it's this. The only thing more gracious than a God who gives us rules to live by is a God who's willing to die for us when we don't. The only thing more gracious than a God who gives us rules is a God who is willing to die for us, to take our place, to take our punishment, even when we fail to keep them. And this is what Jesus has done for us. So love God's rules, obey them, but depend on the one who obeys them perfectly for us. He is our true path to flourishing. Thank God for his rules. Thank God for our Savior. Let's pray together. God, forgive us, forgive me for my disbelief. For even how in preaching a message like this of knowing the beauty of your laws and the joy that's found in them, how quickly I refuse to believe that your way is better than mine. God, I pray that you would forgive all of us. God, we fall short. Help us to believe that your way is better. That your way actually leads to to flourishing and to joy. Help us to be able to give thanks for your rules and help us to obey them only through your spirit. And through the death and resurrection of your son are we even able to begin to truly obey. Enable that in us, Lord Jesus. And God, we do thank you that Jesus, Lord Jesus, that you you died for our forgiveness, that you kept these rules for us. You knew that we couldn't. And so you provided for us a way of rescue. And so, Lord Jesus, we rejoice.